Well, we're continuing in our series on Nehemiah, and I uh, encourage you to uh, turn there. Uh, book of Nehemiah is, again, right after the book of uh, Ezra. Those two go together, and we are uh, looking at this historical story and recorded account in Nehemiah's memoirs of what happened as God called him to do this great work of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem uh, in Uh, with the people of exile that were coming back from exile from Babylon. And so what I want us to remember and understand that this is a historical event around the year 445 BC, somewhere in that era, that that actually happened with this real person named Nehemiah who brought these people of Israel back from exile and now was working with this remnant to rebuild uh, this wall. And and so it's it's a physical rebuilding project for sure, but it's also a spiritual rebuilding project that Nehemiah is embarking on. We're going to see that even more so in the, in the weeks to come uh, about that in the, in the later uh, chapters. But it's also for us a metaphor or an inspiration for us in the rebuilding projects that God has in our lives. And so a question that I want you to be thinking about today and throughout this series is, what is the rebuilding project that God has embarked on in your life? Where are you rebuilding hope in some way? Where is there need for having a rebuild of hope somewhere in your life? And so that's a question that we want us to kind of be reflecting on throughout the series and, and today. So last week we, we talked about strategy and we looked at chapter 2 and 3 of Nehemiah and some of the very practical strategy that, that Nehemiah had in that and the importance of strategy. And um, uh, Kerry Newhoff, he was one of the speakers that was actually at the conference that Marine had mentioned, and he's a pastor and a blogger and a writer, and he, he says this about strategy. It's your strategy, not your intentions, that determines your success. And this idea that intentions matter, and so where we intend to go or what we intend to do is a starting point, but that actually isn't what determines your success. It, it's sort of like, what is the strategy? What, is the, what are the bigger pieces of what is going to get you there? Uh, and, and so not just good intentions. They're not enough for change. And as I was preparing this this week, I saw uh, on TV there, there was a new, a new Ford commercial out there for all you Ford fans. Uh, Brian Cranston, an actor, he was driving this Ford truck through the desert, and he's kind of mumbling under his breath about how, yeah, the other companies, you know, they just talk about changing the world, but we're actually doing it, you know. And so this idea that, you know, some people can just talk about it and just sort of have good intentions, but what is it that you're actually doing to bring change? And that strategy and action go together, and so that's some of Uh, what we talked about last week. And so I want you to be remembering and thinking about this this great rebuild project that God has in your life, or maybe it's a small rebuild project that God has in your life. It it matters. And it's a way of of building hope uh, in your life. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's rebuilding purity in your life. Maybe it's rebuilding in the brokenness that you find in your family or in other relationships. Maybe it's finding faith again. Maybe it is doing something great and audacious for the kingdom of God, that God has called you to do something really significant in his kingdom. Or or maybe it's just stepping out from feelings of fear, shame, or inadequacy. So whatever the rebuilding project is for you, I I pray that today will be an encouragement and also an inspiration as we look uh, at this story again of Nehemiah. Well, this is a, a time of year where, as we know, New Year's resolutions are popular. Actually, that was a few weeks ago. Now, this is the time of year where sometimes the New Year's resolutions kind of wane, and we struggle, and we go, hmm, not so sure about that. 
Uh, here's one New Year's resolution that I like, where the one woman says, my New Year's resolution is to stop putting my foot in my mouth all the time. I'll bet yours is losing weight, huh? Yeah, there's something you can say to somebody. This is a person who needs a little bit of help with that. Um, but whatever it is that your building project is, whatever it is that you are wanting to embark on or that God has stirred in your heart, you need to know that here's the tension. The tension is, is that no matter what the project is, you will face opposition and distraction. It doesn't matter what the project is. But if God has you doing something, if there's a work of the Holy Spirit that is doing something in your life, that you will face opposition and distraction always. It's not a question of if, it's just a matter of when and how. And we'll, we'll see that in this story here because the strategy of opposition comes in so many forms. And just because you are doing the will of God and doing the work of God doesn't mean that it will be free of those things. In fact, oftentimes the very opposite is true is that those things will even come on stronger. And because we have a very real enemy, which we will see and we'll talk about in a little bit, But also there's other things. There's these subtle distractions, or sometimes they're bigger, but oftentimes it's these subtle things. And so let's just look at a few things and ways that we face opposition and distraction. And so these are a few that came to my mind. What about when others try to make their priorities your priorities? That's a distraction. You know, and you kind of set about your day, and you've got your to-do list, and it's all planned out, and your agenda's set, and you've got kind of the day planned. And then somebody comes up to you and says, hey, hey, can I have five minutes of your time? Which you know is never five minutes. And it leads to this conversation and it leads to something bigger and deeper or something and suddenly their priorities have become your priorities and your whole morning is gone. Or, or that uh, wise proverb, or actually it was just a word of wisdom of a pastor mentor of mine who told me this once and said, Bruce, you know, nobody expects you to do everything, but everybody expects you to do their thing. And there's some truth in that, right? Like, people get it, no, you can't, you can't do everything, but, but their thing is the important thing. And so people often will try to make their priorities your priorities. And it can be a distraction. I mean, we see that again in Nehemiah's story, and we'll come back to that. We see that over and over again. We feel that in our own life. I was, I was talking to somebody, uh, Stefan Funk, who's a funeral director, and we were reflecting on the different kinds of work that we do. And, and I was making the comment that for a funeral director, your work is completely reactive. Like if you think about the balance of your week and what is proactive and reactive, what is in your control and what you do and what is reactive responding to other people. I mean, a funeral director, you wait and when the phone call comes or it's like a funeral is happening, like you now respond. Or a firefighter or an EMT person, I mean, their work is so much reactive, right? And so for some people, that's just the nature of the kind of work that you do. But I think for all of us, we maybe, I know in my life, I try to evaluate how much of my week is proactive with the priorities that I feel like God has given me and how much is reactive. And we need to have a balance of those things, but we have to pay attention to those things in our lives. What about the official opposition people? You know them, right? And some people who just feel like they're the official opposition to everything. Now, they don't get business cards made up. That'd be really handy if they actually had a card that they would give to you and it says, I'm the official opposition to any idea that you ever have. Um, but they, they don't usually present themselves that way. But they're the people who, you know, they're, they're just always trying to push back, always trying to question, always challenging everything that you do with every idea that they come with. As many of you know, I've been involved with the Canadian conferences as the chair of the board and moderator. We've been going through some really significant change, and I could identify a few of these 
people. Thankfully, they live in other provinces. But anything that, you know, comes your way, it's like, no, it's just wrong. It's just pushback. It's just constant. You know, these are often the people who say they're, they're, they're the realists, right? I've just offended a whole bunch of you right now because that's you. Like, I'm just a realist. Don't say that, Bruce, right? What about the challenge of leading yourself? There's a challenge. That's one that I struggle with. I mean, forget about other people or outside opposition or forces. Just how about the challenge of leading my own heart and my own mind and the sinful nature of my own flesh? And so the opposition and distraction that comes just from within my own life is so daunting at times. And I think for so many of us, we, we need to continually refocus and discipline ourselves. Paul says, I know the things that I should do, and those are the ones that I don't do. And the things that I shouldn't do, those are the ones that I do do. And it's this war within our mind and our heart. And how do we stay focused and disciplined and not get distracted in, in any way? And then there's just people who you just go, okay, they just seem evil. Or maybe it's just hurting people. And you go, I don't get it, but they just seem to come at everything in a way that they just want to undermine and destroy everything. And sometimes that's one of the realities that we face. But now here's the important thing. And so for your realists out there, let me just give a disclaimer. Not all opposition is bad or evil. Not all critical questions are evil or wrong or on the opposite side. In fact, sometimes those are the very important things that we need to hear. And sometimes they are the very valid critiques that we need the humility to understand and listen to. And so the wisdom is to know the difference between them, right? And to understand when it is just something that is coming at us in the wrong way that is totally uh, not of the Lord and, and not helpful, or when is it actually something that we do need to hear and we need to understand and listen to better. Then there's just the challenge and opposition of fatigue and discouragement. Or you've just been going at this project, whatever it is, for so long, and you're just tired. And you kind of think that you're winning the battle, and then you fail again, and you're kind of going at this again, and you're working and reworking this project, and it just doesn't seem to get you anywhere. And then lastly, just the reality of spiritual warfare. And we'll come back to this later, but this reality that the enemy just seeks to steal, kill, and destroy continually, and to pay attention to that. So what do you do? What do you do when opposition hits when things come at you and you don't know exactly how to accomplish this big goal or these rebuilds that you're working on? Well, you can do a few things. First of all, you can set your sights lower. Here's a couple that uh, I kind of like. Honest John says, my wife challenged me to make New Year's resolutions I can keep, so I'm determined and committed to become fatter, lazier, and older this year. That could work for you. That's one option. Or the other one is this nice little sheep named Gerald who's a realist, and he has one thing on his list, eat grass. Okay, so that's one option. I mean, you can just set your sights really low and just go, okay, my project, my focus this year, my goals are like this. Um, but I think God has some bigger things in store for us. I think God has some bigger things in mind for us, and it's probably more helpful to expect it and to plan for it, the opposition that's going to come. You know, we often create or design our systems, whatever they are, even our schedules, in a way that doesn't expect distraction, interruption, or opposition. And good coaches, for those of you who follow sports at all, we're in football season now, at least in the NFL, and so good coaches, they, they are ones who uh, actually create distraction and opposition even in the midst of practices. I mean, they try to simulate that in their practices, so that's why they'll 
practice in stadiums and they'll crank up the noise meter and the sound so that as they practice, they actually can't hear each other. And they simulate the opposition that they're going to have during the game. And so they're expecting it. And so the reality for us and the helpful piece for us is to actually not shrink back from it, but to expect it and then to prepare for it in one way or another. And in Nehemiah, we can see at least five ways that Nehemiah opposes opposition and distraction. We're going to walk through each of these in just a minute, but he does so in prayer. His first response to everything is prayer. Secondly, he does so in building community. He, he constantly draws people for, in community and doesn't allow people to just sort of go on the fringes, but he gathers people together because there is courage and hope in community. He keeps them focused, and he reminds them of the vision and why this matters. He has them both act and also expect the opposition, and we'll see that in the story. And then lastly, the perseverance to just keep going, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, just keep getting back on that horse, just keep doing whatever you need to do to walk this out and to continue on in this rebuilding project that God has for you. So again, we we see in this story that this was God's project. I mean, this wasn't just Nehemiah's idea in his head. This was God's project that he called him on. And God's project faced all kinds of opposition and distraction. So let's review it in the story, and let's just take a walk through it. We're going to go through a whole bunch of text here, so bear with me. But Nehemiah chapter 2 to start with. I want to begin there. And I want us to just get a a glimpse of, actually we'll look at most of the text, but it's not everything, it's not an exhaustive look, but I want to get a a sense of the opposition that Nehemiah faced. So Nehemiah chapter 2, I want to go back there, that's where we were last week, and starting in verse 10. And we skipped over these verses last week because I wanted to get to it this week, but we see now some of the opposition that he faced, and it starts out really subtle and soft. So verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite And Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival. They were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So it just starts that way. Just displeasure. That's kind of soft. But Then you go on and it kind of builds from there. Down in verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed, scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? And I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall but you have no share, legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. I want you to pay attention to that last line. We're going to come back to that, and that's a significant piece that we'll see in just a minute. Then flip over to chapter 4, and you see at the beginning of chapter 4, the opposition continues. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the the Sumerian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build a wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even if a fox walked along the top of it. Kind of snide remarks, sarcasm coming out. The opposition is starting to build. And then you go down a little bit further in verse 10 where it says how the people of Judah began to complain. The workers were getting tired. There's so much rubble to be moved. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. The enemies were saying um, they'll swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. And so again, the the opposition is just building. Then flip over to chapter 6, where the opposition continues. And it says how Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, see they're kind of recruiting others, the opposition is building, 
they found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained. So Sanblat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized that they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? And four times they sent the message. And each time I gave the same reply. So here we have this distraction of, well, we can't get him one way, so let's invite him to this meeting and distract him from the work and probably have a bit of an ambush in place. And Nehemiah pushes back. He says, no, 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 I'm doing a great project of God and I'm not going to be distracted by this. And I, besides, I know that you mean for evil. And then if you see and you, you keep reading in verse uh, 6 and following, they, they, after they get rejected, they actually send an open letter. You ever had those or been involved in that? I've had that where you have opposition and it starts with just emails and then somebody gets really frustrated and so they send a, an open letter to like hundreds of people. Like, okay, thank you. Um, and that's some of what Nehemiah gets here where it's slanderous, it's attacking his character, his motives. It says, you're just trying to rebel. You're just trying to undermine the king. And he puts it out there. They, these people in the opposition put it out there for everybody to see and Nehemiah pushes back and defends himself and that God has called him to do this. And then you see right at the end of chapter 6, just this last line, and it kind of sums it all up, and it says, and Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to intimidate me. So the thing I want you to see in this story is that Nehemiah is doing this great rebuilding project for God, and he is facing opposition of all kinds in a continuous way. It just is relentless. Like it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And so you look at Tobiah and Sambalat and these interesting characters that we read about, and you go, what is with them? Like, what is going on in their hearts and minds? What is their big deal with this opposition? And it was, it's interesting when you look back. Remember what Nehemiah said in chapter 2 at the end that I said, pay attention to this? He says, uh, you have no share, no legal right, no historic claim in Jerusalem. Now if you flip back to Ezra, again, these two stories that go so together, and in Ezra chapter 2 where they are actually taking an accounting of the exiles returning from Babylon. And here's what is recorded in the official documents. It says, Another group returned home at this time from the towns of, as they're listed. However, they could not prove that they or their families were descendants of Israel. This group included the families of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda. Hmm. There's that name. If you flip over to, Ez- or to Nehemiah chapter 7, After they rebuild the wall, Nehemiah goes through the history again and the recorded people that are coming through. And almost the identical uh, scripture is listed in Nehemiah chapter 7. It says, another group returned at this time from the towns of, listed, however, they could not prove that they or their families were descendants of Israel. This group included the families of Deliah, Tobiah, and Nakoda. Interesting. I don't know what all's going on in Tobiah's heart here? But this guy's dealing with a whole bunch of rejection. And for whatever reason, and I don't even understand what all it means or what the implications would have been for, his, for him and his family, but when he came back as one of the exiles to Jerusalem, there was no record of him having any connection to the people of Israel. And he was not recorded in that group. And here's one of those truths that we've experienced, maybe we feel it in our own lives, is this truth that hurting people hurt people. 
And that when people have stuff in their life that they haven't dealt with or that has caused some kind of deep pain or that is this unresolved conflict or unresolved wound, it kind of comes out in different ways in our lives, doesn't it? And suddenly we're reacting to things and we find trigger points that that kind of pop up and they kind of cause us to respond in one way or another. And it's because of something within us that actually hasn't been resolved. And, And you know, you've been in those conversations where somebody is sort of challenging you or there's an issue that's sort of brought to you and then you start digging a little bit deeper and you realize, okay, what we're talking about here actually isn't an issue. The issue, this is actually just a symptom, but the issue is like way deeper and way more significant and goes back way further. And so I, I don't fully understand what's going on in this part of the story, but it seems that Tobiah has some really unresolved stuff in his own heart and his own life that he's working through. And so what does Nehemiah do? However it's coming at him, what does he do in this story that we see of opposing or pushing back against this opposition and distraction? Let's look at those five things that I listed just at the beginning. First of all, he prays. Over and over again, Nehemiah prays. In chapter 4, verse 4, after he gets the rebukes that you see just before, he says, Then I prayed, Hear us, O God. And he cries out to God. That was Nehemiah's first posture. We saw that right in chapter 1 at the beginning of this whole deal. Where Nehemiah, his first response is just bring it to the Lord in prayer. God, this is your project. This is your work. As you look a little bit further on in, in verse 9, you see the same thing. As soon as they were, uh, Nehemiah is recording how they were going to throw us into confusion and fighting against us. And it says, but we prayed. We prayed to our God. And then you look over in chapter 6, same thing. Verse 14, it says, remember, O God. And then he says, God, remember the evil that these men have done against me. And he actually calls God's judgment on them. But the thing I want us to see is that Nehemiah's posture and first response to this opposition and distraction and challenge is to pray. And secondly, what he does is he he draws people into community. And again, as we know that the enemy wants us to feel alone. Nobody understands us. Nobody gets what you're going through. Nobody understands the opposition or conflict that you're facing. And Nehemiah is constantly drawing people in and saying, no, 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 gather together. As we face these challenges, we will face them together because in community, it builds hope. In community, it builds courage. Not when we do it alone. And so he's constantly doing that, drawing them together shoulder to shoulder. You are not alone. And so in in chapter 4, verse 12 to 14, he calls the nobles together and the people together. And half the people worked and half the people stood guard and they were there shoulder to shoulder. He says in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 20, he, he calls them together. He says, when you hear the trumpet blast, rush to wherever it's sounding and then our God will fight for us. And he declares this truth. But, but he first of all says, he, and it's this first experience of a muster point that you see in, in scripture. And he says, when you hear the trumpet blast, everybody come together to this place. And then God will fight for us. But he's constantly drawing people in community. In verse 22 of chapter 4, he's saying to the people who live outside the walls, he says, no, no, you come inside the walls and live with us. Don't be alone out there. Come together in community. And so constantly this call to community. And then Nehemiah, he continually calls them to focus and to remember the vision, to remember the bigger picture of what they're doing and why it matters. And he says... Be encouraged. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord in verse 14 of chapter 4. God is fighting for you. Nehemiah is constantly lifting their eyes to see God's bigger purposes and reminders of God's protection, 
Reminders of the authority that they have in God. That you have authority in this. And Nehemiah himself claims this. When he's invited out in this distraction to go meet on the plains of Ono, he says, I am not coming. He says, I am doing a great work, and I will not be distracted by that. And so he's reminding himself and reminding others and encouraging his people to remember the vision, to remember this bigger call. This is a bigger deal than this. And so when you face opposition, to have that reminder of focus. And then fourthly, these two things together, action and expectation. That they work, that there's action involved, they keep building the wall, but they do it expecting opposition and battle. And so we see that in a number of places. In 4.13, where they placed armed guards to guard the families while they worked. In, in, chapter, in verse 16, where half of them worked, half stood guard. In chapter 17, where they actually had one hand to work, where they held the tool, whatever they were using to build, and the other hand held the sword. And it's this picture of having the working tool and the sword to fight off the enemy in the same hand. And so they took action and they expected opposition. In verse 23, they didn't take off their clothes and they carried their weapons at all times, even when they went to get water. They just expected it. They were just ready all the time. And then lastly, perseverance. Amidst all the opposition and distraction that they faced, they just kept going. They didn't give up. And then we see that wonderful line in chapter 6, verse 15, where it gives this summary statement. So on October 2nd, the wall was finished, just 52 days after we had begun. What a remarkable project. They, as human leaders and human beings, had to do their part, but God was behind them and God was at work and they persevered. And you know, when we approach the New Testament and we think about what Paul faced as he was working on building the church, God's incredible building project of having the kingdom of God experienced and seen and the power of God in the local church. And Paul is working on this church planting project and he goes through all kinds of challenge and opposition. You see the very same themes come through of the relentless opposition that Paul faces and similar responses to Nehemiah of how he responds in prayer, in community, in encouragement, in persevering, in, in being ready for it, in expecting it. Let's, I just want to walk you through a few samples of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. He says, We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, and he's saying to this church the same reality, and he says this, we think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought that we'd never live through it. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves, and we learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. A little bit further on in that letter in chapter 4, he says, now we have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile jars of clay containing this great treasure. And this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to, to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. 
And today, a little bit later in the service, we'll participate in the Lord's table together and we'll remember. And in a similar way of what Paul is saying in this text, we too will do the same thing. We will actually join in with Jesus in his suffering and remember and try to reflect and identify with that suffering. And Paul says it a little bit further on in 2 Corinthians 4, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. And then the last text from 2 Corinthians I want to show you is this picture of community, of the encouragement that comes when somebody with the gift of encouragement comes into a community and helps build hope. And Paul says this, When we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. We faced conflict from every direction, with the battles on the outside and fear on the inside. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy, but so was the news that he brought and the encouragement he received from you. And when he told us how much, how much you longed to see me and how sorry you are for what happened and how loyal you are to me, I was filled with joy. And so here Paul's talking about some of the pain that he himself experienced in this church. And how he too was accused of some things. And he, re- he references that in here. And he says, you know what? When Titus came, it was just such an encouragement. And he's speaking about being in community. And the role that we can play in community of being a word of encouragement to others. And where we can build hope into others in a very unique way. With that kind of community. So again, what's your rebuilding project of hope? What is it that God is inviting you into? That the Spirit of God is kind of pressing you into? That God is convicting you of? That God is encouraging you in? That God is shaping in you? How does what we looked at today apply to us? I want to leave you with just three thoughts before we go from this text here today. First of all, I would encourage us to examine ourselves. And what I mean by that is, to examine ourselves in the sense that we have to actually start with a starting point of where are we opposing God's plans? Where are we actually the official opposition? Where are we actually bringing discouragement and undermining the hope of other people? Where are we actually resisting change and disruption and a new direction and what God actually wants to do in this context or in this person's life or in this situation? And sometimes we have to do the even deeper work of asking ourselves the question, where, where have we been hurt so deeply that we actually haven't resolved our work through that we are actually that hurting person who's hurting others? So I think the first part in this is, is not just seeing that opposition out there, but actually reflecting and, and seeing it within me. And saying, God, what, what do you want to show me about the work that you need to do in me first, actually? to resolve some things, to heal some things. And then secondly, those, those five things that we just walked through, kind of in one package, that we would, similar to Nehemiah, similar to Paul, that we would actually be people of prayer, people of community, of believing in and drawing into community, building community, people who uh, focus, people who have action and expectations, people who persevere. And then thirdly, realize the spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 Verse 12 speaks of this reality. 
And as I re- read this text, I want to invite you to just stand for a minute, if you would stand with me. And in the, the men's ministry that's been meeting the last three weeks, James has been walking through this Ephesians 6 armor of God, and, and last night was the third night of that, and, and it's just a powerful picture and reminder of this reality of this armor of God, and that we actually are fighting a spiritual battle. And Paul says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And Paul says, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, and stand firm. He says, put on every piece of armor, then stand your ground. And, and last night at the end of the evening, James had all the men, there's like about 50 men circling the whole lounge, standing together, declaiming tr- proclaiming truths about God, convictions about what God is doing in their lives, and words of encouragement and affirmation to each other. I mean, that is a remarkable testimony of, of God inviting men to stand in a different way and women to stand in a different way. And that's what God is inviting us in in this rebuilding project of hope and renewal in our lives. Whatever your project is, may God help us to stand in that way. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these incredible stories of truth, these historical accounts that encourage us, that inspire us, and that call us to live differently. And so, Lord, I pray for each one here for whatever the rebuilding and renewal project is in our lives, that you would help us to examine ourselves, that you would help us to oppose the opposition that comes our way or to be ready for it in the ways that we talked about. And God, that you would help us to stand firm and realize that often that it's, it's not that other person that's the enemy. It's actually just the real enemy stirring and distorting really good people into confusion and conflict. So God, would you do your work in us? And would you rebuild hope in our lives wherever it's needed? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.